Well, good morning, everyone. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will dive right into our text in Second Peter. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, as we do every week, for the privilege we have of being called your children. Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives, to opening our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, to see our sinfulness before you, a holy God. And we thank you for your mercy that, that you sent Jesus to die for sinners like us. And Lord, we pray that as we go through the material today, that you will strengthen us in our faith, that you'll remind us of truths, and that we will take seriously our responsibility to continue to study and to continue to learn and to continue to grow. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Peter, and we're in chapter one, and we are going to begin our study this morning of verses 12 to 15. And if you were here last week, I spent the entire week basically doing an overview of all the teaching that I'd done through the first 11 verses. And the reason that it was important was, number one, I had not taught new material out of First Peter since I think I said February 5th. So it had been a really long time, and I wanted everyone on the same page before we dove into the verses, because the first word, at least in my English translation of verse 12, is therefore, which really ties into everything that we talked about. And so today, we're going to be jumping into the heart of the text. And as I started studying this a few weeks ago, and then even this week as I was finishing my studies, I thought, well, I'm not sure if these four verses really even give a full message for a Sunday, but I thought, well, I, I can probably get a full message out of it. There's certainly a unit they need to be taught together. And then yesterday, as I started working and typing and doing things, all of a sudden I looked up and I thought, oh, I'm not even starting fully completing the second verse and I'm already got too much material. So they do cover for a full Sunday. They'll actually cover for a couple of Sundays because there's a lot more here, I think, than meets the eye, although the overarching point is straightforward, and that's what I'm going to try and zero in on. But our verses today really explain why Second Peter was written. They're the motivation, they're the explanation for why this letter came out. Peter knew that these believers needed this instruction because his desire for them as expressed in First Peter was that they be holy as God is holy. That, that's the ultimate goal, but the purpose is to further that goal, and the purpose is here today. Peter was writing a second letter to these believers because he knew they were facing some serious issues. So he had spent time reminding them of all they have in Christ, but he knew the dangers that were coming at them were very serious. We've read it before, but he wanted to make certain that they didn't stumble. Now, he knew that there were a few, perhaps, that weren't necessarily fully committed to the faith. That's why he said in verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 1, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. In other words, he wanted to make sure that they did that self-examination that's appropriate for every believer. But he knew that the majority of them were genuinely saved. They were grounded in the truth, and he treated them accordingly. He wanted to make sure they had everything they needed to live out the truth. 
And he wanted them to understand all of these things because they were deceivers that were trying to destroy the work. I've read it several times in our studies, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. And in 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17, now I'll reference these again later, but he mentions those who will distort the scriptures. They're untaught and unstable, he says. They distort them as they do also the rest of the scriptures. In other words, they take, and he's specifically referring to writings of Paul, and he's saying these people just distort everything. And so he says, be on your guard that you're not carried away. So again, all of this is the context for his words. He wants them to be fruitful. He wants them to be increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. And there's an urgency in everything he says. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So really, that sense of urgency is for their holiness, for their godly conduct in the face of all of these external things that could lead them away. Again, the big picture is always important, even as we're diving into these verses. False teachers were going to be a problem. And if the people fell prey to the false teaching, it would detract from their ability to engage in holy conduct and godliness. So Peter knew the best defense against error was to reiterate truth. It's interesting, the U.S. government, and I didn't know this, many times I've looked to the analogy of how do people detect counterfeit money, and I found out that there's actually a government program to teach people how to identify things. And it's a U.S. currency training program. There's even a website. But they explain the purpose. It says, this course is designed to help you learn how to use the security features in U.S. currency. The more you know, the less likely you are to accept counterfeit notes. In other words, they're going to teach them what the true bill is like because if they know what the true bill is like, the counterfeit's not going to fool them. That's really the ultimate issue that Peter is doing. He was warning them the context of his concern was false teachers that would invade, but he didn't spend time cataloging the false teachers. He wasn't identifying by name. He wasn't spending his time going through all the errors. He was going to spend his time, and that's what we're going to start focusing on today. He was going to spend his time focusing on the truth. So as we cover the text, and as we begin to get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of this, I always try and come up with a teaching outline. It's not inspired by God. It's just something that's, something that's helpful for me to organize my thoughts. And I had a little bit of a struggle. But I think remembering the overarching goal is holy conduct, godliness. I think what we find here in these four verses are three practical principles for pursuing holiness. I wasn't trying to use all those P's. They just jumped in there and it gave me tongue-tied. But these are three practical principles for pursuing holiness. But I think we have to work a little bit to see them. I don't believe I'm inventing anything. I don't think I'm foisting anything on the text. But we're just going to have to walk through this to understand where these points are coming from. So the first principle 
is this. There is no such thing as too much teaching. There is no such thing as too much teaching. And we begin in verse 12. Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Now, he's talking certainly about the truth that he had just covered that I reviewed all of last week. The truths about the work of God in the lives of sinners like us. The truth that God provided us everything we need for life and godliness through the promises of his word. The truth that we should be living holy lives, building virtue upon virtue. The truth that when we are faithful and we come to faith and we live out our life, we have an eternal reward with the Lord. That's the therefore. All of this is wrapped up in that. And these are the most important truths. But he even goes beyond this, those specifics. And he's talking about the broader when he gets further along. He's talking about the truth. He's talking about the broader base of Christian knowledge. So he says, therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things. Because of all this truth, because I want you to be holy as God is holy, because I want you to live godly lives, because of the hope you have in heaven, I want you to be purposeful with how you live. So I'm going to remind you. I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you over and over. I will always, as long as I have interaction with you, I will always do this. Now it's interesting because he doesn't, explain, well, he explains all he needs to explain, but he doesn't specifically lay out what I think undergirds a part of this. So universal truth of fallen humanity is that we are forgetful. It started early when we were little kids, when we forgot to tie our shoes and forgot to do our chores and we forgot to eat something and we forgot to do something. We forgot our homework, we forgot this, we forgot that. But as we all understand, it happens to everyone. And as you get older, this doesn't go away, it gets worse. Now part of that, I think, is because as you get older, you have greater responsibilities, you have more things to remember. And then at some point, the effects of sin that are breaking down our body start breaking down our brains, and all of these things compound themselves. It's part of the fallen, created order that as things break down, we forget. It happens to everyone. And if we're honest about it, and we have the ability, because sometimes physical deterioration becomes too much of the brain, but while we have the ability, many of us will develop techniques. I forget things all the time, so I put things on my calendar because I get reminders. I talked to somebody this morning, and I was sincere in saying I wanted to help them, but I said, send me an email, because I, I'll forget. It happens to all of us. In fact, for many of us, we do live in denial, and we think, I didn't really forget. You didn't tell me that. I didn't know that. Peter is writing in the context of this aspect of fallen humanity. It's simply a universal truth we all forget. 
Sometimes it's not a big deal. I left my cup of coffee on the counter. That's disappointing, but it's not a big deal. Forgot to buy bread. Well, that's not a problem because they still sell bread if I go back to the store. But some things when you forget have bigger implications. If you forget to look before you pull out into Highway 19 into oncoming traffic, it's life or death. And Peter, I believe, is dealing with something that is that serious. The danger to believers is incredibly great if we take our eyes off of Jesus. Peter is doing what the Bible does from beginning to end. He's talking about reminding, but the Bible says that over and over. For example, in the nation of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the law is being given to them. It says, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Verse 2, You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I read in my studies, I don't have the references down, but that was what the Passover was for, was to remind Israel of what God had done for them in bringing them out of captivity. Ecclesiastes 11.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, for the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. But we see these things also in the New Testament. Peter's going to say this again, even in this letter, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Jude, in verse 17, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says this, Remind them of these things. In other words, that's the duty of a pastor. Remind them. So again, Peter is making it clear in his letter, this is why I'm writing it to you. I will always be willing to do this. And the reason is not because you're just dumb and you don't know anything. That's not it at all. He's saying you do know it. I believe it. You're establishing the truth, but I also know it'll be easy to forget it in the moment, in the time. Therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been establishing the truth which is present with you. This is where it expands the knowledge base because the truth really is all of the doctrine of apostolic teaching. The truth that they already know that he refers to in 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2 as the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he's saying, you, you know these things, but I'm going to keep reminding you. I'm not going to stop. And again, it's not because I think you don't know it. It's because I know you know it, but you need to be reminded of it. Every believer has the truth residing in them. Second John, verses 1 and 2, there's only one chapter. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. 
all of the things that we learn to be saved and that as we have been taught, it all fits together. As I was studying, and I actually I studied this over several weeks and it just clicked yesterday, I wasn't thinking of this, but it's something that I sometimes forget when I'm studying and perhaps you sometimes forget when you're reading a particular letter. But I was reading a commentary and, and it was mentioning something in passing that turned on a light bulb of a bigger thing. The truth is the basic principles on which our faith is grounded. It's the apostolic teaching. It includes those things in verses 1 to 11, but it's a broader knowledge base. What I forget sometimes when I'm reading Scripture, what I even forgot as I was studying Scripture, or at least I didn't think about it, is that when Peter drafted this letter and sent it, much of the New Testament was still not written down. This is a relatively early letter. Some of the Gospels weren't written yet. There was a lot of the New Testament that they did not have. We come to church and either on our devices or multiple devices or in our written scriptures, we have all that God revealed, the 66 books of the Bible. We have it all. So if somebody's saying something to us, we know we go to the book and we have it. These original believers that were receiving this letter, they didn't have all of that. That's some. But they didn't have everything in written form, but they did have the truth. They did have instruction in apostolic teaching. In fact, it appears that very early in the history of the church, even to the point of the day of Pentecost, the apostles already had been given, and by the Holy Spirit they were empowered to share the body of truth that would comprise the Christian faith. At Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 42, after the preaching of Peter, there was a major Repentance. 3,000 came to faith that day. Talking about Peter in verse 40, he says, And with many words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But the apostles' teaching was the core of everything. That's what really the New Testament is. It's apostolic doctrine written down. But even before the New Testament was completed, the truths that comprised the New Testament were discernible. That's why in Jude, verse 3, we hear this statement, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, there was a body of truth that was given by the Lord to the apostles and that was enough. The New Testament didn't add to that, it just wrote it down. That's what the New Testament is. It's the written summary of the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Again, I already referenced it in chapter 3 of Second Peter, where Peter will talk about the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, that's ultimately the New Testament. So in this context, 
when he's talking about reminding them of the truth, he's reminding them of that core apostolic doctrine, but the reminders were perhaps even more necessary because they didn't have everything written down yet. But they had some. It's interesting because one of the ways that Scripture verifies Scripture is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Sometimes people question whether a certain person was inspired. Peter affirms in this verse that the letters of Paul were Scripture, that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, focusing on what he wants. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Again, his relentless focus on holiness, verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking them in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So, so in other words, the believers had some written down scriptures. They had the Old Testament, and they had parts of the New Testament. They didn't have the whole. But in all of this, Peter's focus was, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep putting these truths in front of you. No matter what they had, he wanted them to have more. He was going to remind them no matter what. And as I was thinking about this, Peter is really classifying the role of a pastor. I'm going to talk about this more with some other verses. This is what a pastor is called to do, is to remind God's people of these things. And of all the faults that I could find in our church, this isn't one of them. I think our church does incredibly well at reminding God's people of the truth. That really is the ministry. That's what Pastor Steve does. For 40 years, every Sunday, most times morning and evening, he's reminding us of things we already know. I think that's what's happening in most of the adult Sunday school classes. We're reminding you of what you already know. Yet sadly... Far too many people in the church don't value this. I'm guilty of this at times. We can have the mindset, well, I already studied that. I want something different. Or I heard six sermons on that. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. But that's foolishness on our parts. Reminds me, as I think all these things through, it reminds me of what often happens when we correct someone or we tell somebody something they forgot. I don't know how many times it's happened with a child or in the workplace. You start telling somebody something and they say, oh, I know. No, you don't, or else I wouldn't be telling you this. But it actually, I'm wrong. They do know they forgot. That's what this is all about. Again, I've shared it before, but we've got to be careful. Don't let that mindset creep into your church attendance to think, you know what? We already know this. Let's move on. I heard a very famous pastor. I was at a national convention for biblical counseling. If I'm not mistaken, it was in South Carolina, and it was many years ago because a pastor named Kurt Sharbaugh was still here. And I remember there was a nationally known, he's very famous, I won't use his name, but he was a very famous nationally known person. 
And he was doing a seminar, and he's in this seminar, and he was waxing eloquent. He's very articulate. And he started out like this. He said, you know, can we understand that we all know what's in the Bible? We don't need to talk about that. We need to talk about applying in things. And I was taken aback. It's like, wait a minute. What do you mean we don't need to know? We already know. We don't need to study what's in the Bible. He was basically telling people, don't focus your sermons on telling people what's in the text. I already know that. Peter begs to differ. Peter says, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to keep telling you over and over and over. It's the problem often in churches is people think, well, I already know that. Tell me something I need to know. That's wrong thinking. Strong thinking when that thought goes through my mind. I've shared it before in multiple contexts, but I'll never forget sitting in a meeting many, many years ago with Pastor Steve with some people that were leaving the church, and they had plenty of criticism to go around, including of me, including of him. But their primary criticism of him was, all you do is teach the Bible. We need something to help us. Here's the problem. There is nothing else that's going to help you. You can go looking all over the place, but Pastor Steve is doing what God ordained is necessary, what Peter says. We should remind, remind, remind. And there's nothing else to remind you about except the truth, what you already know, because that's what's going to enable all of us to live godly and holy lives. One of the things that resonated in my mind, and it was one of the first things that was an inkling of a call to me to go away from being a lawyer to being a pastor, and I remember thinking this as the pastor was teaching through a text, I'm like, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? I needed to know this. This is in the Bible. And my original calling was, people need to hear this. That's what I want to do. I want to tell them these things. And texts like this are a reminder that that is enough. If your pastor's doing that, there's many other things in shepherding. Covered first, uh, first Peter chapter 5. There's a lot of tending and caring. But if a pastor neglects reminding, which is another word for teaching, the truth of the word of God, the rest of it will fall away. So let me encourage you. No matter how many sermons you've heard of Pastor Steve, come and listen again. No matter how many times you hear me repeat myself, come and listen again, because it's not accidental. In fact, the more you study the Bible, you realize the entire Bible is just a reminder. For an unbeliever, it's the ticket to the kingdom, but for the rest of us, it's just a reminder stated in countless different ways and different letters and different gospels, all pointing to the same thing. So, the first practical principle that we get from verse 12 for pursuing holiness is there's no such thing as too much teaching. And the second point, which I'm going to state, but it's actually going to be next week before I explain why I phrased the point this way, is this. Complacency is a danger we must take seriously. Complacency is a danger we must take seriously. And this all comes from verses 13 and 14. And I'm going to read those, and it, and it really is going to tie up in the words in the New American Standard that talk about stir up. And next week I'll explain how that impacts complacency. But Peter says this in verses 13 and 14, I consider it right, 
as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, Peter is stating something here, again, that we'll cover in more detail next week. He knew his death was imminent. So he was expressing, again, that urgency that I have life and breath now. I'm going to do these things as diligently I can because I know my time is coming to an end. In fact, the Lord has told me that. Again, we'll address all of that. But what I want to focus on now is something that it really, I missed it the first couple of times I was reading through and studying. But he says this, I consider it right to stir you up by way of reminder. Again, he's talking about as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, earthly dwelling, as we'll talk about next week, is really just our physical bodies. But from my studies and some great insights from other pastors and scholars who have studied and written on this letter... I think there's a urgency that goes beyond just that he is going to die. I think there's an urgency placed upon him because Jesus Christ called him to do what he's doing. In fact, I believe we can see in Peter such passion in part because God was very clear with him, this is what you must do. So I'm going to try and connect a few dots on this just so that when we'll get to next week and I start explaining in more detail this phrase, I consider it right, we understand where this is coming from. Now Peter has already made it clear in the big picture, these aren't infants in the faith, they know what they need to know and God's already given them all that they need. Verse 3 of chapter 1, the beginning, seeing that His divine power is granted... To us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. They knew all they needed to know to overcome sin and to proclaim the gospel and to be a witness in a perverse generation. Yet not only has he just said, I'm going to keep reminding you, I'm going to keep reminding you, I'm going to keep reminding you, but he's going to explain why he's convinced of the need to do this. And some scholars and pastors made an argument that I think makes a lot of sense. It comes out of his personal experience. He doesn't want for us to have happened to us what happened to him. Peter lived and walked and ate and ministered with Jesus for three years. I can't really comprehend what that was like. And even within the inner circle of the twelve, he was in the inner circle of the inner circle. He saw things that very few humans in all of history saw. For example, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus. I can't even comprehend that. As far as we know, he's only the second person in a physical body to walk on water. He didn't take many steps, but, but he walked on water for a moment. I've highlighted in the introduction of this book, Peter had remarkable privileges. And he was without a doubt 
the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there couldn't have been anyone that knew more than Peter. Certainly others might have, but he was in the inner circle of the inner circle. James and John and Peter saw things that even Jesus said, don't share with others. And God worked in Peter's heart such that he not only knew things, he knew who Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, Matthew 16, 13 to 19, there's an account that begins this way. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? As you recall, some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets, or Jeremiah. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Regardless of the Catholic Church's distortion of what was actually there, the reality is Jesus said you are blessed. God revealed this to you. You're going to be used to found the church. I can't imagine higher praise, affirmation. No question you could say at that point in redemptive history, Peter was on top of things. He knew the truth. He knew the Savior. He was there. He was grounded. He was established. It's fair to say, since everything I've been talking about is based on apostolic teaching, that the apostles were the ground floor. They were it. I don't doubt that at that moment in time, Peter could have truthfully said, I know the truth. Did he understand everything? We still don't understand everything in our human fallenness, but he knew the truth. And he was committed. Luke twenty two thirty three. Jesus talking about what was about to face him. But he, Peter, said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. So this strong apostle, this strong believer who already knew the truth, was standing with Jesus. I'm there. I think, to a certain extent, and none of us would claim to be an apostle, but sometimes we can have that kind of confidence. I, I do know the truth. I go to a good Bible teaching church. I believe these things. I read my Bible. I pray. The rest of the world may not believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus. The rest of the world may not appreciate good teaching, but I appreciate it. And I think Peter is writing to that mindset because he understands in just a moment, no matter how grounded and how solid you think you are, boom. If you look away from the truth, you're done. It was just a little bit after Peter made that great declaration, you are the Christ, that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because he was working against things. But even if it's not that far, Jesus made it clear in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, Peter had a 
target on his back. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in you when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, but he said to him, this is what I read before, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Verse 34, and he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So in all of this, Peter understands that even the best of the best can fall quickly. He does not want that to happen to others. But beyond that, there's something that undergirds his failure that I gloss over. Because when I read those verses in Luke, what jumps out at me are things that I've been taught over the years and things that I read. Well, Peter's, boy, he's setting himself up for failure. He, he's making both. He's, he's, he's writing a check with his mouth that he can't cash. But something in there in verse 32, I think, really undergirds all that we're talking about. Jesus said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is verse 32 of Luke 22. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus was looking to that point when despite his catastrophic failure and humiliation, when he would be restored, Jesus was saying, when that happens, strengthen your brothers. I think that's what's driving everything Peter's saying. He understands how quickly we can fail. He understands that the mountaintop it's just a short step from the valley because if you step off the edge, boom. He understands that any believer is at risk. But he also knows God gave him a second chance. And God said, when this happens, strengthen the brethren. And that's his focus. That's his motivation. That's why he's writing. In John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, and I'm going to read from the ESV. I normally teach from the New American, but I believe a translational word. I don't believe either version's wrong. I think they're both right. But the word chosen in the New American conveys something in our English slightly different, although it means the same thing. But this is after Jesus rose from the dead, and this is when it's describing that turning again. This is the restoration of Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him, Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Jesus' paramount command to Peter in the restoration of him to ministry was strengthen the brethren, feed my sheep, meaning feed them with the word of God. In other words, everything Peter did from that point forward, and he was faithful. He had slip-ups. Paul had to confront him about his, his refusal at one point to eat with Gentiles because he was thinking fleshly. But in general, everything about his ministry was doing what God called him to do. And with this letter, with these reminders, I think Peter is really saying to us, I'm going to fulfill what God called me to do. 
And we'll cover it next week. But that's why I believe he can say, this is right. This is what I should be doing it. I consider it right. So I'm just going to encourage us, and I'm speaking to myself as well as I'm speaking to you, as we go further into this letter and we're looking at these reminders, we need to make sure that we don't view reminders as insulting us or demeaning us. As though somehow somebody reminding us is an insult to our intelligence. Don't, don't you know how long I've been a believer? Don't you know I know? If you're given a reminder, it's not just because somebody doesn't trust you or have confidence in you, particularly in the church. Peter knew from his own experience, failure is right around the corner if you take your eyes off Jesus. So his reminders aren't insulting, they're not demeaning. It's just simply, this is the work of a pastor. This is the work of a shepherd. Teaching is reminding, teaching is feeding, teaching is tending. It's the kindness of God to us to allow us over and over again, week after week, sermon after sermon, to be reminded of the truths of God's word. So take seriously the privilege we have to be reminded. Look forward to the reminders. And as we come back next week, we'll finish this section where Peter explains a little bit more about why he's doing what he's doing. So let me close our time this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness to us. Lord, I know in my heart at times I can think I know that. I already understand that. And yet, Lord, I think you would tell me I'm still going to remind you. I'm still going to tell you, you need to be reminded. Lord, I pray for all of us that we'd have the right attitude to hearing the truth over and over again. Lord, help us never think of it as drudgery. Help us never think of it as a waste of time. Help us never, Lord, to go looking for something else. Help us to embrace reminders. Help us to listen to reminders. And Lord, help us to learn from reminders. The ultimate goal for us is to be holy as you are holy. Lord, help us to apply the truth to our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Look forward to seeing you next week.